Welcome to the Cardboard Herald Reviews, where we give you audio versions of our game reviews, then go behind the scenes of our creative process. Cyclades, Auction House of the Gods. There are few genres more polarizing and ambiguous in their definition than what the community has dubbed dudes on a map. Some have intricate, detailed rulings over movement and attack patterns, using rulers to measure out grand battle plans full of nitty-gritty details. Others are like Risk, long, sometimes tedious ventures that test one's patience as much as it tests your strategic wiles. It's not a genre for everyone, and the in-your-face nature of these games aren't necessarily inviting to those who are unsure of what these games have to offer. But hark, what's this? Down from the heavens does Cyclades drift, as if the gods themselves deemed it worthy to be cast in their own image. For truly does Matagos' first big-box mythological extravaganza stand out from the crowd as a wholly unique, invigorating, and inviting package to players of all sorts. Cyclades is a game that, at first glance, appears like any other dudes-on-a-map game. A board dotted with soldier minis of various colors? Check. Dice set aside for combat encounters? You bet. But beside this typical layout is where the game really happens. A rather colorful and elaborate board featuring a mighty pantheon. Zeus, Athena, Poseidon, Ares, and Apollo sit, stoically, waiting for your players to fight feverishly over them, not with troops, but coin. Cyclades is a bidding game. Each round, players will have a chance to claim one of the gods for themselves, spending their limited pool of coins in attempts to gain their power for the given round. While a seemingly simple task, players who take their turn after yours will have the opportunity to outbid you, forcing you to bid on another god altogether. Timing and planning is a player's best friend in this vast realm of seas and islands, usually meaning the difference between a victorious military march and the swift and catastrophic destruction of your plans. This is further compounded by the fact that the order the deities activate in changes round to round at random, meaning that turn order becomes quickly important. While you may desperately need Poseidon's help, he's not going to activate until it may be too late. You may not want Athena's help, but she'll be going first, allowing you to manipulate the board just enough where it might be worth it. This balance of figuring out when to strike and what sacrifices to make only assist in creating an atmosphere of thoughtful strategy. While each deity provides different abilities and resources, they also allow you to build one of the four structures that combine to form a metropolis. Control two metropolises at the end of the game, control two metropolises at the end of a given round, and you win. This scoring system is simply marvelous in how it can keep all players involved for the duration of the game. Your opponent just built a metropolis, sure, but there's no reason why you couldn't try and march over there next turn and take it for yourself. Or perhaps you're building a band of philosophers to erect your own metropolis in due time. Every single building you build is like a neon sign announcing what's up for grabs, with the exception that a player's last island cannot be attacked 
unless it would win the attacker of the game. Poseidon and Ares largely control the militaristic portions of the game, but do so in a slow, methodical fashion. In order to invade a given island, you must first invoke Poseidon to build and line up your ships in a manner to create a clear path across the ocean from where your troops are to another location. Only then can you, on a future turn, bid on Ares, who allows you to build an army and actually march those troops to their ultimate destination. This makes combat less of a sudden and jarring experience, instead forcing players to telegraph invasion plans well in advance, allowing others to gather defenses in hopes of discouraging such attempts. Players can also have their ships fight, potentially destroying that once convenient pathway to victory. Zeus and Athena handle the more passive effects, generating priests and philosophers. Priests make it so a player has to pay fewer coins when bidding, making it much easier to outbid your opponents for a fraction of the cost. Philosophers apply steady pressure to your opponents, as they create a metropolis once you have gathered four, pushing each player to be that much greedier as they struggle for supremacy. At the end of the day, coin is all that matters in Cyclades. It's what you use to buy the buildings you need to create metropolises, to afford the abilities of each god, to accrue more troops or ships if need be. Other than some slight bonuses, money is the only way you'll have any chance of victory. Luckily, Apollo is here to help, providing one player with an extra cornucopia to place on the island of their choice. Cornucopias provide one coin at the start of each turn, rewarding those who have settled on plentiful islands or placed their ships on trade routes. Additionally, players may receive monetary donations from Apollo, depending on the state of the board. Most players will only gain a modest one-coin handout, but those who only have one island left will get a whopping four coins for their troubles. Because of this, I've spent some games barely getting by with a single island in hopes of gathering a sizable treasury for the late game. I say barely getting by because each island limits how many buildings you can have on it, meaning that it's nearly impossible to build a metropolis with a single island. On top of this, each building, besides Athena's, will give a player the appropriate passive buff. Ares and Poseidon's structures give a plus one buff to any land or sea battles respectively, as long as they take place on or next to the island on which the building resides. Zeus, on the other hand, provides discounts for creature cards. Yes, the mythological beasts of yore make an appearance as well, some as gorgeous and gargantuan minis that stomp around the board, making their presence known. Each round, as long as a player doesn't bid on Apollo, they may purchase one of the creature cards laid out, gaining an immediate boost, potentially stealing resources from others, or flying your troops to a specific location. Creatures can be powerful and devastating allies when used correctly, leading to some of the most exciting and gratifying plays of a given game. As you might have guessed, there is a fairly varied pool of strategies to build from, allowing players to attempt different methods and ideas with each playthrough in hopes of discovering all the secrets held within Cyclades' watery catacombs. That isn't to say this is a complicated game. The rulebook is about four pages long, and new players catch on to the basics quickly. But within this simple format, there is a ton of options and ideas to touch upon, only further supported by a few expansions. Speaking of which, I've seen a lot of reviews and blogs claim that Cyclades isn't good without the Titans expansion, and while I won't go into too much detail as to what that pertains, 
I'd like to address the allegation. Titans, amongst other things, adds a new board to play on, one that, rather than being filled with little islands, is comprised of a couple land masses. This, by and large, is an attempt to make the combat of the game much like any other dudes on a map game. Rather than being limited by the sea, combat plays more like a game of risk than anything else. Poseidon's role in the game is also greatly diminished, although there are some profitable trade routes to place your ships on. On top of this, a new unit that is introduced, the Titans, allows players to fight on any player's turn by spending a coin. Again, this works to remove the value of what the base game introduced, making it easier to just fight your way to victory. Titans takes away much of the unique identity that the base game fosters, turning it into just another dudes on a map game. While some may claim that this is the only way to play the game, I heartily disagree. In my eyes, the grand strategies and ocean voyages are what give this game such a strong and individual identity. Now, Cyclades isn't perfect with a handful of flaws ultimately holding it back. The first and most prominent of these, in my eyes, is how combat is handled. While the number of troops you have present in a fight does matter, each adding one strength to your attack, each player does roll a single die, adding between 0 and 3 to their total strength. As one might expect, this can lead to your battle strategy falling apart due to crummy luck, but a wise player can account for this and bring enough troops or hedge on the odds. This hasn't greatly affected any of my recent playthroughs, but this is a very real possibility that might put off some players. The other primary issue comes from the balancing of various creatures, as there are some beasts that are clearly superior to others, namely the Pegasus. With the ability to instantly transport any number of troops from one island to another island, the Pegasus can be a wildly powerful and game-changing card, one that's often fought over the moment it appears. Entire strategies can be shaped around or stymied by the sudden, opportune appearance of the card. Fortunately, Cyclades Fortunately, Cyclades allows for some self-balancing through the auction system. If there is a powerful monster available, players will pay dearly to go first. Still, this card has warranted deep discussion on Board Game Geek, and it is worth talking about. But if those are my only concerns about the game, it's abundantly clear to me that Cyclades is a clear standout within the board gaming hobby, having become my favorite game to date over the last couple of years that I've owned it. The unique way it handles the dudes-on-a-map system makes it a thought-provoking and brain-burner of a game, yet provides a certain accessibility to anyone who tries their hand at it. The theming and the artwork is marvelous, the components generally are of high quality, and the design is built in such a way to keep me coming back to it time and time again. It is a wholly immersive and rewarding experience to invest oneself in this world of islands and the warriors that inhabit them and one that I intend on revisiting for the rest of my board gaming days. Alright Luke, we just got done listening to TCBH reviews of Cyclades, Cyclades or Cyclades or however Cyclades. you pronounce it. Whatever. Whatever. And it's late at night there. It's kind of late over here in alaska how you doing luke i'm doing all right you know i just got back from uh playing some board games so i can't i can never complain about that 
Well, Tuesday nights are my work night, which is when we're recording this right now. But I'm right. interested. What, what have you been playing? This evening, I played um, Hardback, the uh, deck-building, word-oriented sequel to Paperback, also by Tim Flowers. Tim uh-huh. Flower, Flowers or Fowers, uh, whatever. Uh, he's a really talented designer, regardless of what his last name is. And, and um, I really dig hardback and i'm interested in in the juxtaposition of his two games and then i played uh legendary firefly which is a mess of mechanics and rules but that's kind of legendary's mo to a certain degree yeah Um, i i think so like it it's like this is a cooperative game but we actually want you to be competitive during it i don't know every time i played legendary and i haven't played it in years since the, the original legendary came out but Every time we got to the competitive aspect, like who actually won the game, that kind of got thrown out the door. It felt weird. Oh, yeah. It, it totally at odds with my impression of superheroes and what would actually be going on. I cannot imagine the X-Men and the Avengers being like, well, we deserve credit for actually destroying Doctor Doom in this case. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I couldn't deal with the competitive aspect of that game. Well, and the issue with the Firefly iteration, in my opinion, so like... You've got so each player represents a different character on the crew, and then those crew members that aren't selected are built into the crew decks that are supporting characters that you draw the cards from and purchase and all of that. And then you've got your ship's health, ship upgrades, ship ship damage, um, character damage, different abilities for every character. Each episode has its own deck, and you're playing through the episodes of the show. But in order to complete a game, you need to play through three episodes. And then there's like five other decks of just cards, and all of them have their own keywords and rules. And it just the amount of setup for the game is absurd. It's one of those things where it's like wider than it is deep, where like everything has additional explanations and little exceptions and little fiddly, even if it's not physical components, but just fiddliness to everything. And that would be okay if all of that really had depth to explore, but it's still a relatively shallow game. So it just feels really expansive without having much to say to it. And that kind of undermines it. I mean, you definitely nail the head on that for sure. Um, I do think that even, even if there was a purpose to it, that much fiddliness is completely unnecessary. I've grown very inclined towards, I think, elegance within board games as a whole. You're becoming a Euro gamer, dude. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that crazy, but like, Something like Azul, I, you know, I've played that, I want to say, three or four times now. And I really deeply appreciate just how simple the mechanics are, just how, like, straightforward it is, straight out of the box. And yet, the amount of depth and intrigue within all of your choices and whatnot. Same with Santorini. Santorini is a game, I think it's tagline, for friggin' sake, is... Learn it in five minutes, play it for the rest of your life, which is an awful tagline because, like, it just sounds so stupid and corny, but it's kind of true, you know? It's a game that suggests almost a chess-like level of uh, 
dynamics when it comes to the the game uh, the game loop, the cycle of how it plays and whatnot. And there's such a variety to it. And I I personally that's probably my favorite abstract game generally. And one of my favorite two-player games, for that matter, because two-player games are really hard to do well, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I I think that that actually is actually in line with Gordon Hamilton, the the designer, Dr. Gord. I got to hang out with him quite a bit. (laughs) The Gord himself. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Gord. Uh, No, he's like a crazy fascinating dude. I got to hang out with him a lot at Dice Tower Con last year, and I did an interview for the podcast. And he is all about um, improving math lessons for children. And he, like, goes around the world to help develop various, like, educational programs in different countries and uh, does all kinds of, like, high-level math education and problem-solving education stuff. And he has kind of, like, a... a cheeky geeky demeanor about him that the 30 seconds to learn a lifetime to master type of thing just exudes gourd in a perfect way um and i think it's one of those things that is like that game is the perfect extension of who the designer is like it, it can be summed up with how that game was represented but that that's an awesome game but we're talking about a whole different greek thing today than santorini that that's an episode for another time we are talking about cyclades the bruno catala joint uh it's actually a co-design right uh bruno catala yes. and ludovic malblanc i believe and we are sure looking at your review from ages ago september of 2017 feels like it yeah so i want to know like how are you still feeling about this game? Because I remember when I first asked you about some of the reviews as you were starting to write stuff for the site, I was like, well, let's hear about a game that you really love and you respect and and you feel like you are completely immersed in and have your feelings changed on this? So Cyclades, um, around that time when I was uh, writing the article for it, just after I finished it, it kind of went into almost a hibernation. Uh, I hadn't touched it for a very long time. And so this year, um, the first video that's going to be coming out for Budget Board Gamer uh, under its new sort of focus or banner is going to be focusing on my 10 by 10 And um, to give sort of an idea, my 10 by 10 is primarily focused on playing games that hasn't seen a lot of play in a while to mm-hmm. see if they hold up or not. And one of those games, obviously, was Cyclades. And I was really worried because I, you know, I had put so much into this game and, and the, the the looming question of does it really hold up, you know, was, was very much prevalent in the back of my mind. And so two weekends ago, I pulled it out uh, on my usual Friday game night at my place. And I'm like, all right, let's see how, how it plays. And we... Played that for two and a half hours in one of the most intense, raucous, just crazy games that I've had in a while. Cyclades holds up to all of my expectations. It is still definitely one of my favorite games. It is by far my favorite game in the dudes on a map genre as a whole. 
just such a brilliant, elegant design, such, you know, unique concepts to the overall scope of how you interact with different players and, you know, move your figures on the board. The fact that they're individual, you know, islands as opposed to a big, you can just kind of sprawl around is fantastic in my opinion. It's just such a well-made system as a whole. That being said, Hades, the Hades expansion does not hold up nearly as well as I remembered. And I didn't really touch on that in the review, but I own the Hades expansion. I do not own the titans expansion um the titans expansion i've heard a lot about and uh as i mentioned in the review most of what i've learned and what i've discovered and what i've seen is that it basically boils down the experience to another dudes on a map game which i don't I'm not really looking to change Cyclades. I think it's a brilliant design in its own right. That being said, I do want to try Titans out. But something that the Hades expansion taught me is, again, it's the elegance thing, right? So Hades, the expansion, comes with five different little modules, I guess, if you will, that you Mm -hmm. can just pop in stuff. The one is super easy. It's a new uh, setup for the start of the game, which is infinitely better, where you bid for your start setup, which is yep. just way better than the base game. Like that's a change, <laughs> but that's a change that you can get by just googling it. You don't need to buy anything for that. So, that's kind of an expansion that's already out there and you have no need to purchase anything. The other four expansions uh just add a lot of rules, add a lot of filler stuff. Like one of them is where there's a minor god that appears at the bottom of the track to the second to last god, the one right above Apollo. And it's supposed to incentivize you to take the um, lower god on the track because um, while they are lower in turn order, you now get these benefits from going there. Mm-hmm. And that's cute and it's a, it's a neat idea, but it throws in like a bunch of new card types and stuff like that. And you have to remember what all of the different symbols for each individual minor god does. And on top of that, honestly, the gods themselves hold such weight to them. Um, like more often than not, I would find that a god lower on the order scale might still be incredibly important simply because that um, deity has the abilities that I need that turn. I need Ares so that I can march to war. And I don't care where he is on the track. I just need that. You know? Right, right. And and the, the beauty to me of Cyclades and the purity of it is that by having the auction mechanism in there, the the balance should be self-regulating in a way that the thing lower on the track like if turn order is incredibly important this turn that the last or second to last god the one above apollo is going to be less in cost because it's simply less desirable to players or that's in theory how it should work out i don't know that you need to incentivize selecting the bottom one because of the auction aspect of the game, like having the 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 pure 
regulation that the the players are holding themselves i think is one of the most genius aspects of this game that keeps it fair there there's almost no way that you can accuse it of being unfair because you can always bid people uh for the position that you want for the god that you want or you can just go straight to apollo to get the 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 bonuses of apollo and I think the interactivity and the, the cutthroat aspect of that auction is what really sets it apart from other games. And I, I completely agree with you that the minor gods feel kind of tacked on or like they, they are just more complication for complication's sake to try to make the lower god appealing when you don't really need to. Yeah. The biggest one that really struck me was the heroes. So for a while, I was really into the heroes because they give you an alternative way of getting a metropolis. There are six that are shuffled into the creature deck, and each of them have their own little figures, which is like super cool. One of them is actually um, my icon on Board Game Geek right now. I forget which one. Uh, Hector, actually, that's him. The one who's like serious and like has his, you know, sitting uh, has his head sitting. <laughs> of on course, his that's who you would pick. I mean, I, I'm I'm nothing if not predictable. Yeah, you want to look wise. Um, That's the important thing. Right. Um, but the issues come in with, like, so heroes aren't affected by the discounts from the Zeus uh, building, even though they're in the creature deck, and you have to buy them, and then you can sacrifice them for their Metropolis ability, but you can't do that on the turn that you purchase them, so you have to wait a turn after you purchase them in order to do that, and... Each of them have a certain cost of income where you spend two coins in order to keep them on the board, but you can just keep them on the board for their military stuff. And the caveats just go on and on and on, and it becomes very clear just how frustrating it is to have them in the deck because you just keep having to remember all of these arbitrary rules. Like they're just – and they are arbitrary rules. They're just kind of there for the sake of complication to a certain degree. The only the only other module that is salvageable from the Hades expansion, other than Cerberus, which is just a fun monster to have in the monster deck, which is one card and one figure. I mean, that's hardly a module in and of itself. But the Hades module is super neat in that so at the start of every round, you roll the two dice. And depending on what numbers come up, the Hades track moves up. And when he gets to the highest point, which I think is a nine, he awakens and Rumor's God is the, sec- the, the bottom most other than Apollo and Hades acts like Poseidon and Ares smushed into one for one turn he's a temporary God that brings out his undead army and encourages like a march just push all of your units across the board take over something and then the undead go back to the underworld and disappear, which is a really neat, like, aggression-style mechanic that puts some tension and some pressure into the game. And he comes with his own specialty building, like all the gods do, the Necropolis. And how the Necropolis works is that it sits on a metropolis spot, and every time anything dies, a coin is generated on the Necropolis. And during the income phase, whoever controls the necropolis gets that money as a part of their income. 
So it, it's a god that encourages a certain amount of aggression. It's fairly elegant in terms of how it um, plays out. And it just kind of adds to the already interesting bidding system in a way that I find engaging. And it's not it's not for everyone. And for like 50 bucks for that whole expansion box, you're not getting too much out of it. I don't know if I would recommend the expansion for that. But I find that I wouldn't necessarily look to play Cyclades without Hades anymore. I wouldn't be like, oh, I need to keep it in. But at the same time, I wouldn't see a reason to keep it out either. Yeah, I completely agree. The The only part that we really differ on is that I usually still play with the heroes after many, many, many games of Cyclades. The heroes don't really bother me all that much. And I agree with you that the rules involved are cumbersome. I don't know that they're necessarily arbitrary like i imagine that they're there for balance purposes but they feel in no way thematic or like they are empowering in the way that you want them to because you're like oh these heroes are supposed to come here and be spectacular and not overpowered but they should be something that you feel really good about getting and there's so much red tape there holding them back and little things that you have to make sure that you're playing right and that are restricting you from abusing them in such a way that it, it is a little bit of a letdown when you're like, I got this powerful hero, Midas is on my side, or Hector, or, you know, whoever it is, Achilles, and then to go like, eh, but I, I can only really use them in this very specific situation, so I'll just have the figure here and he'll look kind of cool, okay. Um, but I, I still overall appreciate them, um, but the the Hades aspect of it is definitely the thing that I think is, again, like you said, maybe not making the entire thing worth it, but it is the thing that shines above everything else aside from the uh, positioning at the start, bidding for uh, positions on the map. And that that's so cool that it adds both a suspense to the overall game, like an element of unpredictability and tension and suspense as you're waiting to see, will he come up? And then it is so heart-wrenching when he comes up and you know that everyone knows something is going down this turn. And it has a thematic and mechanical resonance that I really like too. Like there's, a thematic explanation why he works the way that he does and mm. the mechanics reflect the theme very well. Like this ghost army and ghost ships coming in that are commingling with your own army and making this swift invasion and then disappearing, leaving just your remaining live army there. It, unlike the heroes themselves who feel like they're, uh, I, I guess dissonant from the, theme where you want the heroes to be powerful and heroic immediately as soon as they come into play the Hades stuff feels the way that it should be thematically which is awesome and I think that it is probably the aspect that fits best within the original design of the game like the the tone the the feelings of the original game which is great now, I, I want to know that in reading this review for the, the audio version here, did 
you have any thoughts about like your own writing? Like, did you reflect on anything? Like, that's weird that I wrote that or that has your style evolved at all since then? I certainly think so. I mean, I feel like with anything that you write, looking back on it, there's going to be that weird sort of sense of deja vu, but Mm -hmm. also uh, a feeling of, wow, did I really structure a sentence in that way? That (laughs) feels kind of arbitrary in terms of, you know, what terms you picked. And I've been actually doing a lot of uh, studying recently on sentence structure and like again going on to the elegance concept um how brevity can often uh accentuate or better serve most writing pieces than not and so sometimes i'll see this like lengthy sort of sentence and i'm like i didn't really need to do that but some of the stuff that i really dug about what i wrote to be honest is the like uh the Hark! What's there on the horizon? Why? Yeah, they're getting a little coming down from above. Like it's so dramatic and silly, and I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's um, fun. You know, I'm a theater kid, so like that's my jam. Yeah, it's nice having a little flourish in your language use. It, it makes it entertaining, even if it may undermine the 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 purely analytical nature but that that's part of what criticism is like true criticism you want it to be witty and entertaining because that that's what engages the person reading it if it were purely analytical then you lose all sort of personality and and i believe that good criticism can't be truly objective it needs to reflect who the person criticizing something is and therefore you can better relate to the person or not relate to them, but understand what their perspective may be and then form your own opinions, which is to me kind of the, the new method of criticism that I'm seeing a lot more in video game writing. I'm seeing it a lot more in uh, criticism of movies. Uh, I think that maybe the, the Roger Ebert approach expanding into the world uh, and I'm seeing it more and more in tabletop gaming, which is really cool where you can get to know who the reviewer is and then say, well, I tend to like these type of games more or less than this reviewer from what I know about them and their personality and the things that really drive them uh, crazy or that they really, really dig on. And then you can use that as kind of like a baseline for understanding all future reviews. So the flourish is great. And that's what occurred to me as well. And one of the things I love most about reading your reviews is that you do sneak in so much flourish, which normally you are such a deadpan person. Like your your emails are often like curt, you know, they're, they're just like, a few sentences, very direct, and then your um, tone in some of your written work can be very, very unimpressed, uh, shall we say, with a lot of things. Uh, And even your delivery in conversation can be very, very calm and just kind of cool, laid back. But the flourish is what really indicates the, the emotional expression there and when used sparingly it is so incredibly effective in your writing well and i appreciate that and i definitely do recognize that 
my demeanor tends to be more towards the uh, calm, analytical aspect, at least when it comes to most work that I do. Um, When I get really, like, when game night starts up and I get really into it, you know, I I, I go into a completely different kind of uh, almost excitable mindset. But, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting... Uh, perspective to look at honestly I hadn't really considered it that way Um, but going back to the article one thing that stood out to me when uh, going back over it is and how that's still a very prevalent conundrum in the back of my head how do you personally feel about the Pegasus monster card in Cyclades (laughs) you know the self-regulation thing is again the the thing that I go back to. Like I I don't find Pegasus so bad that I want to remove it from the game or that it somehow spoils the game. Because if it is going to be like a a very important thing for someone's strategy, then I can make them pay the hell out of that, like by bidding. Or in theory, if everyone at the table is of equal skill and equal knowledge they can, in a way, make sure that that one's going to be the more expensive um, god, the first god on the track. Now, there are some situations where it feels like the uh, Pegasus is what decided the victory in the end, but if that's the case, then it was likely going to be a close game or the person who uh, was able to earn it was the person who had the most money and if Pegasus didn't come up and they already had their their one um, Metropolis then they were probably on the verge of victory and you know if nothing can be done to stop them nothing can be done to stop them but usually I think I feel like if you know people are uh, around equal amounts of money and kind of equal positioning you could in theory drive up the bids to the point where the person going first can't even afford the pegasus um but i don't know i guess it hasn't decided enough victories in my i don't know maybe 15 to 20 plays that it bothered me to the point where i i absolutely felt like it needed to be taken out there are some games where there are aspects I'm like, God, that is garbage. And even the designers reflecting on it. There's a, a famous example in Guillotine. There's a card that makes it so people can't change the order of um, of nobles, which is the entire point of the game. And yep. it, in retrospect, he's like, why did I put that in there? It, it defeats the main mechanism by which people have fun in the game. And mm-hmm. so I, I feel good about taking that one out anytime I'm playing guillotine. How about you? Does, has your opinion changed? I don't know. So I think uh, the the moment that really stands out to me, and this was a really great moment, is two games ago, uh, I'd been setting myself up for victory the whole game. I had three of the four building types that I needed, and I had three of the four philosophers that I needed. And the one building type I had left was Athena. So all I had to do was take Athena, get the building type, get the philosopher, done and done. 
Um, there was some kind of back and forth where people started to recognize that, made me overbid to the point where I couldn't afford both. So I got my last philosopher, but I still needed the building on a future turn. The final turn of the game played out where um, I tried to overbid people on Athena intentionally bluffing there. Went to the first god in the turn order. Mm-hmm. Uh, bought the building, whatever it was. I think it was Ares. And then I bought the creature card that happened to be in the top row that allowed me to change one building type, changing the extra building over to Athena to get the second Metropolis. Mm-hmm. I was certain that... Meanwhile, my friend Brian, who is an incredibly intelligent human being, had been saving up money the whole game. And was on Zeus. So he spent a coin to start sifting through every single creature card in the deck in order to dig up Pegasus. And once he was able to find Pegasus, he flew over, was able to overtake that one island, take it for himself, use ships to, or use something else. How did he do it? I I feel like he Pegasus'd, used the Manticore, shuffled the deck, and then pulled out the Pegasus again, but... That feels too convoluted. There was some kind of method to the madness. But long story short is him winning the game solely focused on using Zeus to flip through as many creature cards as possible to dig for the Pegasus, purchase it, and use it. Mm -hmm. And that felt great in the moment in terms of, yeah, you know, he saved up all that money. He, He took a chance and he was able to dig for that one card and get it. But there's that part in the back of my head that goes, you know, how much of the game is dictated on how Pegasus comes out for me. And at least half of my games have been decided by Pegasus in some capacity. Really? For for my personal experience, from my recollections, I feel like at least half of the games have hinged on Pegasus's appearance. Which is odd, and I mean, it's not odd because it's the only card that allows you to not have to utilize your boats to get from place to place, you know? It's such, uh, it's it's a card that throws a lot of the fundamental aspects of the strategy of the game in the game's face, in that much of the game is slow buildup of, I'm gonna build this line of ships here, and uh, maybe I'll get Ares in a turn or two. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll march on your island. Or maybe it's kind of just a ploy to sort of make you waste resources and turns in the future. Um, and then once you have that set up, then you got to build up your army and so on and so forth. With Pegasus, you take all your troops from one island, you sh- sh- slam it onto another. And while there is that aspect of the bidding war... Um, you know, and then people, someone's going to buy the Pegasus and someone's going to benefit it, regardless of whether it's the person who's in the best position or not. Um, you know, you can have that bidding war and sort of like cause people to throw away coins, but ultimately someone's going to buy that card. And that means that someone's going to benefit off of it. And it's going to be something that affects the game dramatically because you can't, defend all of your islands equally like that when there's such like a powerful you know boom kind of card in there right it makes me want 
attempt to try the game once or twice without Pegasus in it just to see how that affects game balance. I think it's worth checking out. The thing that's striking me about this scenario is not only did he have all the money to sift through all of the zoo stuff and get Pegasus to come up, but he also had the forces located at an area in order to take on someone else's forces and do that twice in one turn or to manage to to win a couple combats in one turn without having to retreat without having to lose forces that that seems like it it seems kind of like he was poised for victory at that point like that that takes a lot of careful planning and a lot of things winding up exactly where it should be but maybe that's the extreme example and pegasus just becomes a, a less potent but still dangerous thing when it's not that perfect victory stealing snatching it from your grasps right before um you guys manage to win now sure. i think it would be worth checking out and worth playing without pegasus and seeing uh, heck you could even report on it you know add an yeah. addendum to the end of the article to give your impressions there or put it into your budget board gamer 10 by 10 analysis play a couple mm -hmm. of those games without it and see how it really changes it but I don't know. I would encourage just to pay attention to Pegasus. Like maybe give a gaming summary, you know, go on to BGG and do a session report of what Pegasus did. It can be like budget board gamers Pegasus watch. And you just every game Pegasus are taking note of Exactly. You're you're just every game paying attention to what Pegasus does. Yeah. That's interesting. I definitely it's it's so interesting that within such a like beloved game, there's that one card that's so talked about, that's so discussed generally, and I I just find that to be inherently fascinating as a whole. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to find out what Bruno Catala thinks about Pegasus at this point. I don't know. I'm surprised mm -hmm. he hasn't discussed it on BGG. Maybe we'll have him on um, Budget Board Gamer or on Cardboard Herald again at some point, and we can ask him, what, what's up with the Pegasus? Do you take him out of your games, Bruno? Or are you just too busy <laughs> making Infinite King Domino sequels? What's going on over there? Uh, I don't get the appeal of King Domino. I find it to be a bit too simplistic for my taste, but I do appreciate the kind of game that it is and what it does. You don't have in-laws. That's why you don't get the appeal of King Domino. <laughs> That's fair. That's a very fair statement at this point. All right. Well, I think we're going to keep this podcast a little bit tight and end it here. Okay. So, Luke, what's going on? You started Budget Board Gamer back up again. So where are people going to find all of your stuff? You got like a dozen different projects going on under like a dozen different flags. Well, right now, um, so Budget Board Gamer is going to continue um, to be posted on YouTube, but it's not going to be on the Budget Board Gamer um, YouTube page moving forward. Uh, for those who are unaware, I'm a part of an entertainment organization called Games on Tape. Um, so I'm going to be posting my content through them moving forward. Uh, for those of you who are interested, you know, check out Budget Board Gamer, see if you liked what was there. And if you do, uh, the most recent video, the update video, has the link to the new location. So, you know. Um, 
and primarily what I'm going to be focusing on moving forward. So my biggest issue with my previous work, while while I'm proud of what I've done and while I've definitely talked about some interesting games and done some good reviews, um, it kind of felt like for a while I got into a, a rut of just reviewing for the sake of reviewing. And I never want to do that. I never want to just review something because, hey, you know, look, it's more stuff to talk about. But the bigger thing is that Budget Board Gamer previously was about games that are $35 or less because in my mind, budget was, it's not super expensive, so it's good. Um, and really what a Budget Board Gamer means is buying games that last, you know, buying games that you're going to play again and again and again, and regardless of how much the entry price was, um, it's a game that pays you back in dividends in terms of how long it lasts on your shelf. Value. Um, Exactly. And so Cyclades, I would say, is definitely one of those games that I would put under that banner now under this new uh, viewpoint. And one game that I might talk about down the road, but uh, my first episode is specifically going to be about Arctic Scavengers and 10x10s. Sweet. Um, And that's going to be on the Games on Tape YouTube channel? Yes. Um... It's it's got a, a it's not called like games on tape on YouTube. It's a little confusing. So the link, as I said, is on on the update video. Uh, I need to talk to Tim about that honestly and see if we can't update that. But whatever, <laughs> that's for another day. All right, and then you are let's see, you're of course putting out more stuff on Cardboard Herald. Uh, we mm-hmm. have uh, a bunch of stuff that's up now. Castles of Burgundies up. The Ex Libris review is up that we talked about okay. under the uh, Critical Hits of 2017 video. And then we're going to have a Tiny Epic Quest review up here soon. So all kinds of stuff coming up from you. And anything else you want to plug while I got you on? Not in particular offhand. Um yeah, I'm, I'm doing a ton of stuff, and I'm sure you'll, if you're interested in my work, you'll find a way to it one way or another through my content. So I appreciate, you know, yeah. I'm sure they will. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on, Luke, and you go get some sleep. As always, the Cardboard Herald is a completely free service focused on spotlighting games, gamers, and game creators. You can find all of our podcasts, including the Cardboard Herald and TCBH reviews, on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website. For more recommendations and reviews, you can also head over to our YouTube channel. We do not pay to advertise the show, so please continue spreading the word, following, liking, rating, and doing all the social media things. It truly does help us out a ton. If you'd like to drop us a line and maybe have your listener mail read on air, find us on Twitter, at Cardboard herald or send us an email to cardboardherald at gmail.com or click the contact link on our page once again thank you for listening i've been jack for the cardboard herald and you keep on gaming